Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking at Luke 19. And it is Palm Sunday, so we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday. And what Jesus was doing on the earth. And what he is instituting. That Jesus is really instituting a revolution. He's changing everything. There's been a system in place that got the Jewish people to the point that they were at. And all of those things that were put in place were signposts or shadows or or types of what was to come. And many times in our lives, there'll be indicators, signs of, of, of things that are pointing to a greater reality. But here's what happens in the meantime, as many times as we will see that sign as something not pointing to a greater reality, but we'll see that sign as the reality itself if we look at it and worship it too long. And so when God comes in on the scene, on the Jewish people, they had spent so long staring at the sign that they didn't know the reality had visited them in that moment. It's kind of like the soldier that's at war. He's got a picture of his wife. And he's on his cot and he looks at it. It's not a bad thing. It's a reminder. It's a picture. It's a, it's a signpost. But when he comes back home, if he keeps staying on that cot and looking at that picture... He's rejecting the reality of the thing in place for the picture of the thing. So the picture's not bad, it's just representing a greater reality that is to come. How many of you seen Castaway with Tom Hanks? Remember the ball, Wilson? Wilson! <laughs> It's a volleyball with a handprint. But it got him through, give him the strength enough to have some dialogue to get him through until he could be rescued. But there had to come a point where he couldn't be talking to a volleyball anymore. See, some things have got us pretty far in our life. But when the reality of that thing begins to present itself, we've got to let go of the thing that got us this far and go on to the new thing that God is doing in our life. And that's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about Jesus coming in and changing the entire, a revolution of the entire religious system, of the governmental system, of everything, but he does it in a way that's just so unpredictable. And it just baffled everybody that Palm Sunday is really a day, we call it the triumphal entry, but it really should be called the confusing entry. Jesus experiences every gamut of emotions on Palm Sunday. The people that welcomed him, that the pilgrimage of, of this great holy uh, festival that was about to take place, they experience every gamut of emotions. The religious leaders experience a range of emotions. Uh, Jesus, everybody's just experiencing every human emotion you could experience happen on this day. And it's amazing to see uh, how it shakes out. 
and what was going on and what seemed like a success but then looked like a failure but then looked like a success and it's just vacillating uh, back and forth. Now, what Jesus is doing in the earth, and he's still doing this to this day, is he's moving the Jewish people at this time, he was moving them from ritual to relationship. And this is the place where God wants to move us to. He wants to take us from routine and ritual so that we go into the greater reality, which is relationship with Him. That God's heart is that He wants to have an intimate relationship with the people. God is not concerned with people being very faithful to church. I mean, that is a good thing, don't get me wrong. But that ain't it. That's ritual. That's routine. What God is looking for is for relationship. But do you know something about relationship? Relationship is intimate. It involves two parties. It involves compromise. It involves uh, changing. It involves a lot of different things. And so relationship brings us to the uncomfortable place of intimacy. And intimacy isn't always comfortable. Because when I begin to grow in relationship, I begin to be seen as I truly am. Have to see myself as, as I truly am. And then have to see God as He truly is and respond accordingly. And this can be hard sometimes. This can be hard to enter into that intimacy. I heard a guy define intimacy like this one time. Into you I see. So God is drawing us into this relationship. But some people preferred the ritual. Because ritual is a lot easier. It's a lot easier to look at a picture of my wife and project onto her what she ought to be and who I think she should be than to actually turn to my wife and take her as she is and have a relationship with her as we ought to have it. See, one requires something of me. The other one I can presuppose onto it. See, when we stay in ritual too long, you know what it becomes? When we stay in ritual too long and we forsake relationship, it becomes idolatry. Because if the real is there and I'm still worshiping a signpost, suddenly I didn't see what the sign was pointing to and I've stepped into a realm of idolatry. And I'm worshiping something or a process over God, over the relationship with the Father. And this is why Jesus is always referring to God in familial language. When Jesus teaches us to pray, how does he teach us how to pray? Our Father. Nobody was really saying that. David says it a few times in the Psalms and kind of alludes to that. But nobody was saying, hey, do you want to, here's how you start to pray. If you want to pray, here's how you start. Call God Dad. He doesn't say, Almighty King of all the universe who spoke everything ex nihilo out of nothing and made everything. He says, Dad. 
our dad. And Jesus says, when you've seen me, he doesn't say, when you've seen me, you've seen the creator of all the universe and the king of everything and the, and the majesty. And, and he says, no, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. And when you've heard me, you've heard the father. See, Jesus is moving us from ritual to relationship. He's talking about God being like family. And salvation is like us just coming home to where we're supposed to be to begin with. See, Jesus is not saying go to church. Jesus is saying go home. Go home to the place to where you originally created for. And so this was what Palm Sunday is all about. This was the coronation of a king, but a misunderstanding of what is really going on. Everybody's mind gets blown in this text, including Jesus. It's something if you blow Jesus' mind. And some folks blew Jesus' mind in this text. And, and it's so strange what's going on here because the way Jesus chooses to come into the city is not like what uh, governors and rulers would have done. If a governor or a ruler was going to come in to the city in, in that day and really make an impression, they came in on a white horse. And that thing would high step through there and they would come with their legions of armies and, and all this stuff and everybody would take notice and what they would see is power. Power. So you might turn and give allegiance, but it would be out of fear, nothing else. But when Jesus comes in, he comes in on a borrowed donkey with a ragtag bunch of peasants who are fishermen, tax collectors. Jesus comes in with the IRS some fishermen, and you know you can't get a fisherman to church. Sunday is, a, you know, that's, that's a sacred lake day. He comes in with fishermen, IRS, zealots who are literally terrorists. And this is Jesus' ragtag bunch of people, and he's coming in on a donkey. A borrowed donkey. Jesus is changing the way we would give allegiance. The King Jesus didn't come and put a sword to people's throat and say, bow down or else. He has the sword put to his throat and captures us in love. He comes in on a donkey where people turned and said, wow, he's like us. He's not high and exalted so much as he's become flesh and wants to dialogue with us. Jesus is setting forth a revolution that was going to change everything, but it was, came in such a strange way. It didn't have the fanfare that governors or generals would have. It looked, in a way, kind of pitiful. It looked in a way that Jesus might be accessible and friendly and kind and loving in a way normal 
Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever sit, sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? This is strange, isn't it? You say this, the Lord has need of it. Aren't you glad the Lord gives you some direction when you're doing something to kind of help you? You know what I'm saying? Verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they're untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. So apparently that was sufficient. So think about it. Here come these ragtag folk untying a donkey. Hey, what's going on out there? Uh, the, the Lord needs it. Oh, okay. Yeah, sounds good. It's almost as like the reason why the owners let it go so willingly because they were poor folk too. They needed that donkey. But when they said the Lord had need of it, they realized, wait a second. The Lord is condescending to my level where I might be able to worship Him and know Him on an intimate way. So it was probably the excitement to know the Lord would ask for a donkey and not the best horse that took over them and flooded them and said, well, yeah, yeah, of course you can. And in John chapter 12, we see Lazarus being rose from the dead after four days. Uh, Jesus comes back to town and raises him from the dead. So the fame of this has spread. So at this point, when Jesus is coming in Jerusalem, they're knowing the guy that raises people from the dead is here. He's asking for my donkey. So they willingly give it over. Notice this, the king of the universe, precious Jesus, the, the, the most magnificent, most, I mean, I'm, I'm out of words, okay? Because words cheapen it because they can't describe it. He has to borrow a donkey that he has created. Does this not tell you how humble Jesus is? Who doesn't even allow himself to have his own donkey to ride in on, but prefers to borrow one to come in. See, Jesus is revolutionizing the way everyone will have to see God. He's revolutionizing everything. He's bringing us to the place to where we can't say God's so far off and so high that I can't have a relationship with Him. He's removing every excuse to come near so that we would have to look at Jesus in the eyes face to face and say, Oh God, I choose you! I choose you! That's why Jesus is the great bridegroom and we're the bride. Many times in a marriage, the man has to capture the woman's heart so that he can consummate the marriage and they can be in unity 
through nakedness. But Jesus dies on a cross naked first to show the bride that you can trust me and I'm not trying to manipulate you to draw you into some wrong relationship. See, Jesus is removing all the obstacles and showing us what he's really about. The donkey's owners, they see it as a part of a hospitality. This feast was going on. Everybody was in a generous mood. The Lord is asking for a donkey. Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now whenever a leader, we find this in 1 Kings, rides in on a donkey, it's not a military campaign, it's a civil campaign. It means that they're not coming in to conquer, they're coming in to bring peace and to unite the people. So this king is riding in as the prince of peace, as the one that is humble bringing in peace. This is why the religious establishment have to pull on Pilate's coat, the Roman governor, to, in order to get the crucifixion to happen because they thought nothing of Jesus riding in on a donkey. He's not riding in on a white horse, so why do we got to mess with him? They have to tell him what he did. Oh, he's saying he's this and he's that and Caesar's this. He is? He, he, he stirred up no dust uh, that the Romans would even look at him. And here he is, he's riding in on a donkey. He's, he, he's not coming in as a threat. He's coming in as the peaceful king to ride into the city that he created, that he founded to be the king. But what does Jesus' kingship look like? Jesus is choosing to define his kingship in the terms of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And the scripture says that great, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's riding in on this donkey and he's, he's establishing this is how I'm going to be a king by Zechariah 9.9. This is 500 years before Jesus even is, is even born and manifest in the flesh on the earth. And here they are. They have this signpost that they have. Like this is, this is the one. This is what to look for. And so Jesus rides in and he says, I'm this guy. I'm the Zechariah 9.9 guy that is coming. I'm not the warrior Messiah that you might be looking for for but yet I raise dead things and make them alive and I'm coming in to ride into your city to be received by you verse 36 and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road and as he was drawing near on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen they heard about Lazarus the four days dead guy, and now the author of the miracle is here. They had never seen someone be dead four days and be raised. And so they're thinking, here he is. 
Zechariah 9 9. Here he is. He's, he's, he's coming in. He's, he, this is the one. And so, with all the pomp and all the circumstance and all the excitement, they begin to throw their cloaks on the ground as the chivalrous act to say, We don't even want this donkey to walk in the mud. We want to give a great reception into the king that's coming into his city. And so, they're throwing down their coats and they're cutting off palm branches. One, uh, one book says that they're cutting it off as he's coming. So these are really fresh palms. These come in Thursday. So uh, not as fresh as the originals, but, but still pretty good. And uh, so they're cutting off palms and they're waving them and they're saying, Hosanna, Hoshana. Matter of fact, they called these palms Hosanna palms. Because the, and what that means is save us now or victory. So here they are saying victory is ours. The king is coming in to town. If you look, the palm kind of does a V like victory, doesn't it? A bunch of Vs. One, two, three. Lots of victories going on. And they're cutting palms and they're shaking them around and they're waving them. And now the king is coming into his city and it appears that everything is going according to plan. Jesus is finally getting the respect he deserves. He's finally getting the worship he deserves. He's here. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is messianic language that they're using. This was a song of ascent. They would begin to, during this time, during Passover, they would begin to uh, recite Psalms 113 to, one, to Psalms 118. And this was called these songs of ascent. And they, would, they had messianic undertones that they were going. And as they would sing Psalm 118, they would sing that song as they were going to choose a sacrificial lamb in order to sacrifice for Passover. So they're singing the right song. They've got the right branch. They're throwing their coats down. Everything looks like it's going according to plan. They're even singing the song that they would sing if they were going to choose a lamb for Passover and sacrifice. And they're following Jesus up into the city. Jesus even in Luke chapter 20 verse 17. He cites the same song in a messianic way. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him. Teacher rebuke your disciples. Here's where the religious come in. Because they're still wanting a signpost. Teacher rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you that if these stones were silent, if, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, the Greek word for stone there is lithos, which basically can mean any stone. But it also means the stones of the temple. When Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, no stone will be left on top of another stone in this city and on this temple. So Jesus is saying, if these be quiet, the temple itself will begin to shout and say, finally, it's here. 
I don't have to do these animal sacrifices and, and have all these animals being killed all the time. Finally, this thing can be over and we can move from the presence of God being confined to a drafty corridor or into some building to where I make a pilgrimage. And now the person of God, Jesus Christ, is going to be the temple of God. And he's going to be the meeting place of God. So now all those who worship in spirit and in truth, no matter where they are, can encounter the God of the universe. Jesus is changing everything. He's saying, if I tell these to be quiet, the temple itself is going to shout because the temple recognizes that the new temple, the real temple is here. That God has become flesh. And now the temple, the God that become flesh is going to die and by His blood draw us near so that now we can become the temple of God the way Jesus is the temple of God. See, Jesus is taking everything from bricks and mortar and moving it to flesh and blood. Living, breathing relationship where we will be in Him and He will be in us and we will be in the Father. That's what Jesus is doing. Stones. He's saying the temple is crying out because the real temple is here. Jesus is saying if they shut up, your temple stones are going to start to worship. Because now the signpost must go. Because the authentic is here. It's kind of like when you ask for a Coke and somebody brings you a Sam's Cola. You say, brother, that's a signpost. Where's she at? They hand you a Pepsi. You say, oh, I don't want sugary water. I want something burning my throat. I want the authentic, the real thing. And given our vantage point of the place of history, we can look back and see those stones did cry out. In 70 AD, the temple was, was destroyed. And people died in the temple thinking that there's no way God would destroy the temple. But the reality is, Jesus had already told them, in three days, they're going to tear down the temple, but in three days, it's going to be built back. Talking about his resurrection. So he's telling them, yeah, that thing's going down, but God's doing a new thing over here through me. That Jesus is removing the signposts, removing the things that look like him to say, look, here I am. But some within the crowd would rather keep killing the animals. Because now, instead of everybody's going to be a priest if this is the case. Everybody's going to have the Spirit of God. Well, that means I'll lose my title. That means I'll lose my thing that made me what I am. That means I no longer get to use my expertise in killing animals. this happens then how are we even going to be defined as a people anymore 
See, rituals bring us to the place where we define ourselves not in terms of how God sees us in identifying with Him. We define ourselves within the ritual or the certain thing that we are involved in. The ritual takes over relationship because my identity can be defined by myself. See, for God to change the temple would mean absolute intimacy and vulnerability. That I couldn't just go into the temple, into the holy place, and do my thing, and then leave and leave God in the temple. If I become the temple, then suddenly I can't escape God. Because he's with me and he's in me. And what I've found is the difference between Christians and non-Christians is they understand the reality and begin to love the reality that God's always with them. So the sinner, Jesus is always chasing. And the believer is the one that just turns around (laughs) and lets him find them. this place of intimacy, vulnerability that now I can't escape God because he's seeking me. So I can't use the excuse I'm going to hide from God and get away from church. No, you are the church. You are the church. You are the temple he wants to dwell in. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. I've worked hard inviting and trying to get people here. Like, I'm, I'm super glad. I love church. I'm church from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. I was raised in church. I was underneath a pew playing with Hot Wheels while mama's at prayer meeting till 12 a.m. and nobody said anything. And I still went to school the next day and still made good grades. It was all good. I'm the church guy. I had powerful encounters in church. I love church, but I'm going to tell you something. It ain't about coming into this building. It's about opening up your life and letting the king of the universe come and dwell in on the inside of you and begin to have a relationship with you. And then once you do that, you're going to find out that he's better than you even thought he could be. Better than you could even imagine. So it looks like the people got it, right? Palms, cloaks, Jesus riding in. They're even singing the right song. Here comes the lamb. Yay, we got the, we're going to get the sacrifice. Now watch Jesus' response, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Isn't that amazing that Jesus can see through false praise that is trying to manipulate him to do something that's not in his heart? He's riding in. They're shouting and internally he's weeping because he realizes they don't get it. They don't get how much I love them. They don't understand what I'm willing to do for them. He, He wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. 
and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. After something like that, I would say, man, they got it. They knew the time. They sang the right songs. They had the palm branches. They had the cloaks. Everything was going right. And Jesus sees through it and he's crying. Saying, you just didn't see me for who I really was. You would rather have stones and a temple You'd rather keep your nation. You'd rather uh, have, have all these things and, and instead of worshiping the real me. Can you imagine that? Choosing to worship stones over worshiping God? But it happens all the time. It happens all the time. We choose the thing of lesser value than the thing of greater value. Imagine me stacking up some stones here on the stage and saying, all right, everybody worship those. They say, man, you're crazy. So many other things in our life we will choose over a living, breathing relationship with God and it really amounts to a bunch of stones. Call them the Rolling Stones. About the same age, I guess. But It'd be like defining my relationship with God by what I do in here and not the reality of my heart of who I am out there. It would be taking the representation, a picture of, but not really the reality of the actual thing that it is. The donkey is an animal of peace. But you know what donkeys do? They carry burdens. <laughs> and Jesus was burdened with your burdens. So Jesus gets on a pack animal, not like a king, like a burden. Because he's laden with our sin and our shame and our burdens and he rides in. And as they're singing the song of the Passover lamb thinking they're going to go buy an animal, Jesus is internally saying, I am the sacrifice. I am the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Would you look at me? Would you see me? Would you not see me as a king, but would you see me as a friend, as a brother? Would you see me as the God who loves you? But all they could see was Jesus as a means to an end to get what they wanted. Not as one to bring them into relationship the way they should be. See, Jesus rides in on a donkey and he doesn't ride up to the Roman authorities, kick them out and then sit on a throne. See, Jesus isn't worrying about sitting on a throne. He's already got that. 
He's above that. He's past that. Jesus is wanting to sit on the throne of your heart. That's where Jesus wants to be. You say, man, that makes Jesus sound like this ruler who just wants to rule my life. No, he wants to rule your life because he's the best thing he could possibly give you. It's his direction and his insight and his plan for your life. And that's why he wants to be on your heart because everything he's got planned for you are good things because he is the epitome of goodness. He doesn't want to sit on the throne. He wants to sit on your heart. Verse 45, and he enters the temple and begins to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Have you seen this? This is this crazy thing. Jesus is riding in, he's weeping, and now he's mad turning over tables. The people are happy, and then instead of a riot where Jesus was supposed to go in and kick out the Romans and get on his throne and organize this military campaign and take over, instead he takes a left and he goes into the temple and gets the house of God in order. <laughs> he begins to drive out those who sold, saying to them, "Is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus turns over tables, not because he thinks the temple is bad. The temple was instituted by God a long time ago. But when we keep looking at the temple instead of looking into the face of God and actually dealing with him and having a relationship with him, he'll destroy the temple to remove it so that you could look at the real thing and know where to actually go. Jesus will remove a sign if you keep looking at the sign and not see where it's pointed to. So Jesus turns over the table where they're selling these animals because all these people coming in from pilgrimage, they had to buy animals somewhere. Because if they took them with the journey, they could get bit by, uh, ate by a wolf on the way or an ear get nipped or get injured. And if that was the case, well, then it was no longer a suitable sacrifice because the sacrifice had to be perfect and without blemish. So they would just wait, get to town, and buy the sacrifice there. So Jesus comes and he turns over these tables to stop the sacrificial system for just a moment where that he could sit there and say, I am the sacrifice and this current system is under judgment. And God's doing a new thing in the earth and I need my people to be ready for the new thing that I am going to do in the earth. Jesus was saying the true sacrifice is here. They would take these sacrifices and they would sell them. It's believed in the Gentile part of the court. See, there was a place where only the Gentiles could go. And if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go into the other places. So they were selling these sacrifices there, knowing that this probably wasn't a great practice, but they thought, ah, well, this isn't a holy place anyway. This is where the Gentiles are. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, it's the Gentiles who are going to be coming in by droves, 
and you guys are going to miss this thing. So it's almost like he cleanses that part of the temple to let them know that this isn't a dirty part. This is what my plan is in the earth, is to not just do something in the Jewish people, but to do something in the entire earth. And it's going to be a new precedence where anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter your bloodline. It doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done, or anything about your past. All that matters is, is that you come to the King Jesus and you look at him face to face and you surrender your life to him and say, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you. And you call him Lord. The old system was good, but it had to be replaced by the new thing God was doing. How many times in our life have we cheered God on? Hosanna! Yay, God! And then we see him, and he takes a left instead of a right in our life. I thought he was going to kick out the Romans. Instead, he's going into the temple. See, Jesus comes in to remove the scapegoat mechanism that we all have. It's always somebody else, isn't it? It's always something else. Jesus is telling them it's not the Romans. It's not the temple. It's not your mama. It's not your daddy. It's you. It's you I've got to deal with. It's you I've got to deal with. See, Jesus removes every obstacle to say, this is personal. It's between me and you. And I love you so much, I'm not going to let you live under this false thing that it's someone else's fault for the reason why this or this or this or that. It's nobody else's fault. What I need you to do is to come into relationship with me and begin to take individual responsibility for your life and come into relationship with me and let me change you from the inside out. It's not about removing anything. It's about removing me. But the great thing about it is, is I find the true me in God because the Bible says that my life is hidden with Christ in God. <laughs> so I don't even find the real me until I find God and begin to walk out relationship with Him. Verse 47, we're coming to a close. And He was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. The person who was meant to be in the temple was finally in the temple. <laughs> and everyone's hanging on his words. He turns over the table of ritual and then sits down and says, Let's have relationship. Let's talk that everything about the temple 
was to be about men conversing and dialoguing with God. So Jesus stops all the junk and says, let's talk. And the people are hanging on every word. And so I pray that everyone here, when Jesus makes a left, doesn't make the right, that you would follow him on into the temple. As weird as it looks, as strange as it looks, as it doesn't make sense, he's turning over all these things, what's happening here, but that you would stay put, sit down, and hang on every word that comes out of his mouth. Jesus is looking for a relationship, not ritual. Would you pray with me?